Well, hello and happy Memorial Day weekend to you. I just, on behalf of our entire staff, church here, as well as for me personally, I just want to take a moment and give a heartfelt thank you to those of you who, whether you've served within our armed forces here in the United States or you have a relative that has served or given their life on behalf of the defense of our nation, we just want to thank you um, and honor you uh, and your family members uh, this morning. And so I want to just take a second as we start, um, pray for our time together, but also offer a specific prayer for those within our armed forces. So if you would join me in praying as we get started here. Uh, God, thank you. God, thank you for this country that we live in, for uh, men and women throughout history, uh, throughout our nation's history who have given their lives, um, made sacrifices of um, their livelihood, made sacrifices of their very lives, made sacrifices of their safety so that we all might experience the freedoms that we enjoy today. God, we, uh, we just want to honor them, Lord, um, express our gratitude to them and to their family members, Lord, for their sacrifice and for their service. Uh, Lord, you've blessed us each one of us here uh, with an amazing privilege and opportunity to live at this time in this country and enjoy freedoms that many around the world or throughout history have not enjoyed or experienced. And so we say thank you for that. Uh, God, those are blessings and graces to us that we, um, we don't deserve, that we didn't do anything um, God, to compel you to bestow those upon us, but you have in your goodness and in your grace. And so we say, thank you. Lord, I pray that uh, over the course of this morning, God, that we would glorify and honor you, that we would make much out of Jesus during the rest of our time together. God, that you would speak clearly and powerfully through your word. Um, Would your Holy Spirit take the truth of this final passage of Hebrews and press it deep into our hearts, Lord? Would we not ever forget or waver from the truth that Jesus is better? God, we pray this in his matchless and holy name. Amen. On August 29th, or August 28th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood uh, right out in front of the Lincoln Memorial in front of about a quarter of a million people. And for 16 minutes, he gave what is one of the most powerful pieces of spoken word in American history. And like many pieces of, whether it be writing or speech, oftentimes you can get the gist of the whole by just looking at the beginning and the end. Let me just read you the first couple of sentences from that I Have a Dream speech. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to the end of a long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 16 minutes later, he concluded that speech this way. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village in every hamlet, from every state in every city, 
We will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You want to get a flavor of what the I Have a Dream speech was about? Read the beginning and the end, and you'll have a pretty good idea about what was in the middle. That five score years ago, before that day when Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on those steps and gave that speech, a measure of freedom was won for slaves across the United States. And yet that freedom in the days of Jim Crow, uh, legislation and the civil rights movement in the 1960s, that freedom was not full yet, but Dr. Martin Luther King had a dream and a vision of what that could look like one day. What it would look like when freedom would ring from every village and every hamlet, every state and every city. You want to get a good feel for the middle, understand the beginning and the end. The book of Hebrews really isn't all that different. The author of this letter, or possibly it was a sermon, closes with a focus that reiterates what he opened with. And that opening and that closing make it unmistakable that the intent of this letter is not just to show that Jesus is better, but it is to show the surpassing and overwhelming greatness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the great gifts of the book of Hebrews to us today and for Christians throughout the last 2,000 years is that it provides a reminder that we all so desperately need, that Jesus is better and that everything is all about Jesus. Listen to the way Hebrews opens. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior. And then comes a letter's worth of comparisons of what Jesus is superior to. Everything is all about him. And the first four verses of the letter, the sermon, the book of Hebrews make that clear. Everything is from Jesus. God made the universe through him. Everything is through Jesus. It's being sustained by him. He's sustaining all things. And everything is ultimately to Jesus. He will be the heir of all things. In a cosmic, universal, eternal sense, everything is all about Jesus. Okay. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Everything is all about Jesus. And in a cosmic, eternal, universal sense, everything is from Jesus, through Jesus, and to Jesus. And then Hebrews 13, specifically verses 20 and 21. That's where we're really going to camp out uh, during this time. Verses 22 to 25 are, are kind of an exhortation, a little bit of a, a final farewell or a final greeting, but we're going to camp out in verses 20 and 21 and see that in a practical daily sense for a Christian, everything is all about Jesus. And it's again, from him, through him, 
to him. And so that's the lens we're going to look at. First, what we have from Jesus. And there are four things, four Ps here. We have peace, provision, promise, and power. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, the God of peace. That's the first P. God is the God of peace. This does not mean, notice it doesn't say that he is a God who has peace, though he does have it eternally within the perfection of the, etern- of the Trinity. He's not merely a God who gives peace, though he certainly promises to give that to his people. In fact, we can pray for that from him. But he is a God, the God of peace. That's the difference between claiming that God can give us something and that God is that thing to the very foundation or core of his being. It's the difference between understanding God as some sort of like cosmic vending machine and understanding him as the fountain from which all good flows. Look, it's not just that God is a God who shows love. He is the God of love. It's not just that God is a God who exercises patience. He is the God of patience. It's not just that God is a God who extends grace. He is the God of grace. I could go on, but it means this. It means that he can do no other than those things. It's not like God couldn't give love. He is the God of love. And so what he does is in love. He is the God of patience and of grace and of peace. It's core to who he is. He cannot go against his very nature. And so when we long for those things, it's not just that we ask God for them. It's that we go to God as the source of them. And yes, we ask, but we also pursue the one who is those very things. So here we see that God is the God of peace. It's something that we can cling to and cherish because it means that those who know this God personally, those who are his children, who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, will only ever find him to be the God of peace. But let's talk just really briefly about peace because peace in a biblical sense is more than just serenity or tranquility. It's more than the feeling you get when you think about being on the beach or in a bubble bath or sitting in your favorite nook of the house reading a book. Biblical peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's more than smooth relationships with your coworkers or your friends or your siblings or your spouse or significant other. It's more than just a lack of war between nations or arguing between factions. The biblical definition of peace means to be complete or whole. Specifically on humanity's end, it would be uh, to be complete or whole in terms of one's soul and relationship with God. God is a God of peace. He is only ever complete and whole. And we find completeness and wholeness in him. So what opens as a prayer here in verse 20, now may the God of peace starts with a statement. With the God who is by his nature, this kind of complete and whole, would he make you complete so that, and we'll see what the so that is here in just a minute. He's also a God of provision. Look at Uh, going forward there in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. This is one of the ways, this is the way that peace is brought into our lives. We need someone to lead us into it. We cannot achieve it on our own. We can't find it. We can't secure it. We can't hang on to it ourselves. And so what did God do? He sent the son to lead us there, to shepherd and protect his people 
along the way. He is the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Those leaders who you honor that we talked about in some previous sermons, they're not the ultimate thing. That cloud of witnesses that surrounds you from Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, they're not the ultimate thing. Those priests, they weren't the ultimate things. Those great Old Testament figures, they're not the ultimate thing. Jesus is the great shepherd, the one who was raised from the dead and can bring us into peace. Among other things, that means that he alone has the spiritual provision that we so desperately need in receiving the peace of God. Third thing, promise. Look at the end of verse 20. The great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Look, the blood of Jesus is everlasting. That's something that we think about in a future kind of sense. Whole sections of the book of Hebrews have been about that reality, the superiority of the blood of Jesus as compared to the blood of goats or bulls or any other sacrifice from the Old Testament. But let me just broaden the picture here. We commonly think about the security and everlasting efficacy of Jesus's blood in an eternally future sense, that that promise, Jesus's blood on the cross, is eternally future secure for us. It cannot be taken away from those who receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus. And that is absolutely true. But that same covenant is everlasting in an eternally past sense as well. An everlasting covenant that is as eternal in its origins and its foundations as it is in its promises and securities. I just, I'm going to read a kind of an extended passage here. It comes from John Flavel, who was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. And he positions a hypothetical conversation between the son and the father sometime way in eternity past before the foundations of the earth were ever set. He says this, the father says of us, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for their souls? And Christ replies, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills that I might see what they owe. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will receive it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. But my son, says the father, if you undertake this for them, you must reckon to pay the last might, expecting no abatements. If I spare them, I cannot spare you. And Christ replied, content am I, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, I am content to undertake it. An eternal covenant, a promise that through the blood of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, the people of God might be ushered into the peace of God. Fourth piece, what do we have through G, or from Jesus? We have power. Look at verse 21. Now may the God of peace who brought uh, up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and here's what's actually being prayed for, equip you with everything good 
to do his will. We arrive at what the author is actually praying would be bestowed. That we would be equipped as God's children with every good thing for a specific purpose, which we'll get to in a minute, which is to do his will. God has and gives everything good. Specifically, every good thing that we need in order to have the power to do his will. Every spiritual gift, every skill or internal resource, every desire, every longing, every talent, every ability, every physical blessing that we would need in order to do his will. And that does not mean that each of us will receive every single one of those gifts in the same measure or every single one of those blessings at any given time. He has and he gives everything good and everything that would be necessary for each of us as individual followers of Jesus and for all of us as the collective church to do his will. He is powerful to do that and he enjoys doing that. And he enjoys doing it and he's powerful to do it for a purpose that we would do his will. What do we have from Jesus? Everything is all about Jesus. And in a practical, everyday living sort of way, we have provision. We have peace. We have promise. We have power from Jesus. Now, what do we have through Jesus? Or what do we do through Jesus? That's the end of verse, that middle part of verse 21. We do his will. The reason we have all of those things is that we might do his will. The reason we're equipped with everything good is that we would channel those blessings in one direction to the fulfillment of his will. Note the next phrase though. Equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. We do this through Jesus. We got everything from Jesus the peace, the provision, the power. We got those things from Jesus. And now if we're going to do his will, it's going to be because we do it through Jesus. This is the wonder and mystery of what it means to live the Christian life, that God gives you everything you need in order to do his will. And then he asks you to humble yourself and partner with his spirit, with him, with Jesus, that he might do his will in us. God gives his children peace, provision, promise, and power from Jesus. But then the only way we live in such a way that does his will and is pleasing in his sight is if we let Jesus do it through us. Think about a car. Everything necessary for that car to drive is present under the hood and inside the car, but somebody still has to get in and drive. Turn the car on, press the gas pedal, use the steering wheel. Everything necessary to do God's will. The prayers that God would give us that and by the promise of an eternal covenant through this great shepherd who's given us peace, we can be confident that God will give us those things. And then if we would submit ourselves to Jesus through him, we can do God's will. It reminds me of a, uh, just right here in the moment, this is not in my notes. It reminds me of uh, the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus take the wheel, except for not in a cheesy way, but in a very real sort of way. Everything is through him. Last, what we give to Jesus. 
This turns from benediction, which is a prayer offered on behalf of someone else. So the author is offering this on behalf of his readers. Turns into a doxology, which simply means like a liturgical or formal praise to God. This big prayer that we would be equipped with everything good to do his will as he's working through us and in us what is pleasing in his sight. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus. That's what we give to Jesus is glory forever and ever. Amen. The Westminster Catechism, which this is a, a long sort of written statement of questions and answers. The first question that kind of explains what Christianity is. The very first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer provided is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But that means we need to answer the question, what does it mean to glorify God? What does glory mean? What does glorifying God mean? I think this uh, definition from John Piper is very helpful here. John Piper says this, glorifying God means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. Glorifying God is to be the ultimate, absolute, all-pervasive reason for being everything we are and doing everything we do. Go back to the beginning of Hebrews. In a cosmic, eternal, universal sense, everything is all about Jesus. The universe and all that is in it is glorifying God all the time, simply by existing. All that it is and all that it does gives evidence to the supreme greatness of God's manifold perfections. Honeybees, just honeybeeing around, give glory to God in all that they are and all that they do. Polar bears, same thing. The grass growing outside. The birds you heard chirping this morning. Simply by existing, they glorify God. They give evidence and witness to the supreme greatness of his manifold perfections. Humanity is the only creature with the ability to do otherwise. That description of Jesus in chapter one, it makes clear that all the glory belongs only to Jesus. Everything's from him. Everything is sustained through him. Everything is moving toward him. And now here at the end, we see that in a practical daily sense, for a follower of Jesus, everything is to be about Jesus. That's how we glorify him. That's how we enjoy him. Not only so, but that is where the deepest and truest rest and satisfaction and joy and peace and comfort and security and love and acceptance and grace and mercy is found. What you need in life is not for Jesus to either give you more of you or more of something else. What you need in your life is Jesus. What you need in your life is to ever rest upon more and more of Jesus, to see him more truly and love him more deeply and cling to him more tightly. He's the one where all of the peace and the provision and the promise and the power is found. He's the one who works through us for the accomplishment of God's will and he is the one who deserves all 
of the glory. There's the two-verse text. And then there's kind of a final greeting there. The author says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. It would take you a little over an hour to read the book of Hebrews if you just sat down and read it out loud. Uh, You're welcome. If that's what the author thought was brief, you're welcome that my sermons are much shorter than that. He wants them to be aware that Timothy has been released and that if the author is able to come see them soon, hopefully Timothy will be along. And then he closes out by saying, grace be with all of you. I want to finish by kind of talking about like the practical wrestle in this reality. What does it actually mean to live in such a way that everything is all about Jesus? There is a certain thread of modern Christianity. Um, It's very pervasive. It can be very subtle when you read about it or hear about it. But that particular thread of modern Christianity says that life is essentially all about me and Jesus. The Bible never gives that picture. If everything is all about Jesus, then everything is all about Jesus and me. And there is a significant, I would say, eternity-shaping difference in those two approaches. Much of modern American Christianity would have us believe that Jesus is a fantastic accessory. Maybe even would go so far as to say he's a necessary accessory whose sole desire is to boost our stature. Give us the life we want. Help us achieve the dreams that we have. Ease the pain that we feel. Help us get more of the things that we desire. Help us get to where it is that we want us or that we want to go. That could not be further from the truth. In fact, it's something that we need to actively work against in our hearts. That's why we sing a song like Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. More than all comfort, Jesus is better. And then there's a line in that song, make my heart believe. A prayer, make me, help me believe that. Help me want more of Jesus. Help me to center all that I am, not upon myself with Jesus is like a really nice kind of handbag. Maybe think like a really nice Kate Spade or Louis Vuitton or something that's got everything inside of it that I might need to get to where I want to go. That's not what a life of following Jesus is about. That's a life where you hope Jesus follows you. That saves no one. You can't read the book of Hebrews and walk away thinking that Jesus could maybe tag along on your arm or walk along behind you and push you to where you want to go and think that you gave your life to him in such a way that your soul has been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's not what Hebrews presents. Everything is about Jesus. It's from him. It's through him. Everything is moving to him and he's the only one that deserves glory. What's Hebrews say? All the peace, all the promises, all the provision, all the power. What's it for? That he might work his will in and through his people. Does that read like something that's about you? Does that read like something that's about me? With Jesus along for the ride? No, it reads like something entirely different. It reads like a lifestyle that says, this is all about Jesus and me. It's not that 
Jesus is a handbag along for the ride with me. It's that I'm a jewel in the crown on Jesus's head and I'm along for the ride with him. Whatever he does, that's what I want to do. It ought to be unthinkable to us. And it ought to be unthinkable on a daily basis that someone as sinful and broken as I am has been counted worthy of coming along for the ride with Jesus. The deepest satisfaction in our lives comes not from imploring God to get on board with our desires and our dreams, but instead from clinging to Jesus and going where he goes. And in doing this, we take what's from Jesus while doing that which is through Jesus in order to give to Jesus what is his due. And that's all glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to get back out that little piece of paper. Maybe your kids have been working on it or maybe this is an activity you do here in a few minutes. And I want you to just look at everything in your life. Everything is all about Jesus. And all those things in your life are blessings and gifts from God that you would ultimately use to glorify him, to achieve his will. In 2008, the Christian rapper Lecrae put out an album called Rebel. And the second track on that album was entitled Don't Waste Your Life. And there's a run in that song that has always stuck with me. It's actually the third verse. Lecrae says this, suffer, yeah, do it for Christ. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life. The money is God's, you better steward it right. And stay focused. You ain't got no ride. Your life ain't wrapped up in what you drive. The clothes you wear, the job you work, the color of your skin, know you're Christian first. People get to living for a job. Make a little money, start living for a car. Get them a wife, a house, kids, and a dog. When they retire, they're living high on the hog. But you see, they didn't ever really live at all. To live is Christ, and that's Paul, I recall. To die is gain, so for Christ, we give it all. He's the treasure you never find in a mall. See your money, your singleness, your marriage, your talent, your time. They were loaned to you to show the world that Christ is divine. That's why it's Christ in my rhymes. That's why it's Christ all the time. See, my whole world is built around him. He's the life in my rhymes. I refuse to waste my life. He's too true to chase that ice. Here's my gifts and time because I'm constantly trying to be used to praise the Christ. Everything is all about Jesus. Why did God give you? Why did he give me this house that I have, this job that I have? Why did he give me this ability? Why did God give us Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? Why did he give me this passion or this desire or this yearning or this longing? Why did he give me breath this morning? Why did he give me this season of singleness or why did he give me this marriage? Why did he bless me with the opportunity to be parents or why am I in this season where I'm not able to be a parent? So that I could ask Jesus to come alongside that which I want in my life? No. So that I might come alongside Jesus in what he's doing, yield myself to him, humbly lift up all that I am, everything that's from him, allow him to accomplish his will for his glory in my life. Do I have every single gift, talent, ability, or material blessing that I wish I had? No, but do I have every single gift, talent, ability, or material blessing that I need in order for Jesus to accomplish his will through me and to receive the glory from it? That answer is yes. And therein is found life's ultimate contentment. If everything is all about Jesus, 
then knowing that I have all I need for him to make my life all about him is a great, gracious gift of comfort. And my heart desperately needs to believe that. I need daily reminders of the gospel. I need the book of Hebrews and the rest of scripture to constantly remind me that Jesus is better. We have what we need from Jesus. We are equipped and able to do through Jesus that we might give glory to Jesus. And so the question is, and this is where we'll end and we'll move into our final time of worship. The question is, do you believe that he's worthy of that? Of all blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy? If the answer to that is yes, then we ought to make all of our lives all about Jesus. If you've not ever made that kind of statement and commitment in your life, you can do so today. There's probably someone watching in the room with you who would love nothing more than to talk about what it looks like to give all of yourself to Jesus for the sake of his will and for his glory. We're gonna close with this song, Is He Worthy. Let's sing together and then we'll be done.